Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 21st, 2014, and this is episode 1390 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday. Um, it is the first day in over two weeks I actually feel like a human being. I, I think I'm through whatever this disease was. Um, I told my wife when I woke up this morning, after the first few days where I felt really, really bad, I did feel a lot better, but I didn't feel well. Uh, today is the first day where I can say that I, I, I feel well today. And uh, hopefully it'll show and I'll do a better show for you than maybe the last couple weeks where I've kind of just pushed my way through for you guys uh, to make sure shows were coming out most days. I did have to cancel a couple. Anyway, it is a Monday show, so it's a listener feedback show. This is where I respond to your emails to jack at the com. Again, jack at the com is my email address. That is my main email address. That's my only real email address. Uh, there are other emails for me. They all go to the same place. If you think I have a super secret squirrel one or something for special people, I do not. Everybody's email goes to the same place. So if you email me, I will see it. I do review all my emails. I can't read them all. The more brief, concise, direct, and to the damn point you are, the more likely I am to read your email. If you're sending it in for something like today's show, put question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, you know, video for Jack, story for Jack, whatever in the subject line. Make your point in one or two sentences maximum. If there's a link, then include that, and then give me details. That's that's the way to get through my screening process. It's just a time thing. By the way, if you send me an email with a link, here's a video, not going to happen. You better give me one sentence on what the hell that video is about. I do not have the time, guys. It's a logistical thing. I'm not being a jerk, but I'm sorry. I cannot do it. If I spent If I spent two minutes on every email I get that's a legitimate email, two minutes, I would spend more time in a day than there are hours in a day just doing email. That tells you I have to go through emails. And if you want yours to come out and be filtered, paid attention to, and get two minutes of my attention or more, then you got to follow the program or it's not going to happen. It's just a business decision. Anyway, before I get to your emails, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, Berkey water filtration systems, of course, but why Jeff? I mean, Berkeys are Berkeys. They're stainless steel. They're beautiful. They have great filters. Everybody knows that they're one of the most cost-effective water filtration systems on the market. They look great. They work great. They're bulletproof. The filters stop working. You rinse them off. If they start working again, they're good. You don't need to replace them. You can you know, filter thousands and thousands of liters of water on one set of filters. They do a great job. Why Jeff? Why not just buy it from the guy at the gun show? Because he's not the Berkey guy. Why would you buy your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could go to the Berkey guy himself? Jeff is a maniac at customer service, one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. And that means you get great pricing coupled with that exceptional service. And I mean maniac-like service. And he has a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs. You can find his website at directive21.com. The word is directive followed by the numbers 21, a dot, and a com. So not 21 spelled out, 21.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. I, I, I talk about it all the time. Triangle of Gun Operator Efficiency. There's three things, and when any of them are app, you know, not there, you, you just do not have an effective weapons operator. First is a gun. 
You give a guy a gun, at least he has a gun. Take away the gun, doesn't matter if he's the best operator on planet Earth, and he has a whole pocket full of ammo. You can't throw 5.56, folks. It doesn't work. You can, it just doesn't do any good. So you need a gun. The next is the ammo. You have a gun, no ammo, you're in a gunfight, you're dead. In fact, you're justifiably shot while you're technically an unarmed man. So you need the gun and you need the ammo. The thing is, you can buy those off the shelf. You know, you can buy the quality of the weapon. You can buy the quality of the ammunition. You have to actually participate in the training to complete the triangle of efficiency, which is the operator himself at the top, the linchpin that pulls the two together. And for that, you need professional training. You can go to the range all you want and make holes in paper all you want until you have lifelike, realistic training by people that are professionals at it. You'll never be the best you can be as an operator. And if you ever, God forbid, need to use that weapon to defend your life or the life of others, that's what you want to be the best you can be. Frank Sharp and his cadre of instructors at Fortress Defense Consultants will help you become just that, the best operator you can be, to make responsible decisions when life and death is at stake and to be effective. They'll also teach you how to save lives. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Next up today... Do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. The summer is traditionally my slowest time of year. Uh, revenue really pinches off toward the end of summer. So if any of you have been kicking around the idea of joining the MSB, this is a great time to do it. Um, it does help support the show. It costs 18.3 cents an episode. And if you are buying stuff in the preparedness world, from guns to gardens and anything in between, I guarantee you I have enough discounts stacked in there. You will get your money back if you use the discounts in the benefits section alone. Plus, there's over $150 worth of free ebooks. Plus, there's some content available nowhere else. Check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to see about signing up. Remember, I give, I give a great discount if you pay in silver. One ounce of silver, one year of membership. That's 24-7. 365 that that's available. Check it out. All right. Let's get into the year that was the episode. Um, these, of course, are the history segments by Alex Shrug on tspwiki.com. And it's 1390, so we'll go to the year 1390. I have two for you today, government-caused famine and the Lithuanian shuffle. All right. So here's the deal. Both of these are good. And once again, I'm going to recommend that you use the link of the show notes. Go by tspwiki.com. Look up the year 1390 and read the one that I don't read to you. I'm going to read you the Lithuanian shuffle. But again, I, this is another, you know, Alex does such a great job on these. Sometimes I'll have two or three and I'm just like, oh, it's going to be that one. But some days, man, he pulls up good stuff that I could go deep into on both sides. This is another one of those days. It's worth definitely reading the other one. The Lithuania, Lithuania has been largely pagan, at least in the northern part. But with the Grand Duke of Lithuania converting to Christianity, the Tectonic Knights are having a difficult time rallying troops against him. The Tectonic Knights think his conversion is a shame. But in the context of the day, he is doing nothing unusual. He converted to Christianity as a condition of marriage to Hedwig, the king of Poland. Yes, Hedy carried the actual title of king. She's a female king. We talked about her before. This year, she opens negotiations with the knights. Lithuania will sign a peace treaty with the knights in 1398 in exchange for land that will act as a bridge to their brother knights in the northeast. Here's my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us. In the Middle Ages, the Christian leadership has been trying to get away from the Roman ideal of might makes right. 
yet persists even in modern day. Some people still try to win over their religion by prov pro proving that their army is stronger. In Roman times, it would have been couched in terms of, if I beat you up and take your stuff, it's because my gods are stronger than your gods. In the modern day, this human tendency to believe might makes right has sprouted into Darwinism and the survival of the fittest. Uh, I think it's spouted into that being humanized. I don't think that, that Darwinism and survival of the fittest is a result of might makes right. Um, I think in the animal world of evolution, might makes survival. I think it's just a fact there. Thus, if I'm able to beat you up and take your stuff, it's because I'm more deserving to survive and you are not. It's the basis of Nazism. It's the basis of a lot of nationalistic movements. Uh, and I think that's what, what Alex is actually saying, is that it's, it's sprouted the rise of Darwinistic thinking in the human context. That we, we, we will evolve by strength. And I do think that's how animal species evolve. Um, I, I also, when, when I hear this, and I, I look at this, I think how true this is throughout history, that whoever wins must have been right. And we've been conditioned to believe that by the media. If you just think back to all the stories that you grew up with, the good guy always won. So that means if so-and-so won, they must be the good guy. And it's just not how it works. In fact, many times the most evil win. Because the evil are willing to do things that the good are not. You know, I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. The the good man with the hammer cocked back on the .45 that could kill a sorry piece of shit, who he knows, if the guy gets free, he's going to hurt and kill somebody else, but has the ability now to take him into custody. We'll choose to take him into custody. Where... The evil bastard, if he thinks the person he's got the gun leveled at will ever be a threat to anybody he cares about, he'll just shoot him. So the real question for humanity's actual long-term survival is how do we make sure the good guy usually wins without lowering ourselves to the behavior of the bad guy, which is going to line up really interesting, really, really interesting with today's Uh, conflicted Monday scenario. Let's start out with last week's scenario. We had a lot of great feedback on this. A, a striking number of people answering it in a way I did not expect. Um, last week's scenario was, after the collapse, people start bartering for goods and services. Illegal drugs have become a hot commodity in your region. One day while showing off your wares at a local trading post, somebody tries to barter with you by paying with drugs. There are no longer any laws that say it, what is illegal or illegal, but you know these substances are harmful and addictive. Would you take drugs in exchange for your goods and services after the collapse? Why or why not? I, I think for me, um, the answer is in general, yes, but it depends. In other words, do the, do the drugs have any value outside of just getting high? Um, if the drugs only have a value for getting high, then I think I'm going to look at the drug and go, how dangerous is this drug? How likely is it to kill somebody? And if it's not... Or how likely is it to key somebody up so that they will kill somebody? If I think it's actually a legitimate danger to other people, I'm probably not going to participate in any way with this distribution. And, and here's what I mean. We have really two types of drugs today. I mean, I know we have millions of types of drugs, but the reality is when I say drugs that are used for recreational purposes, we have two types. We have drugs that have a response that is both psychoactive 
and provide some level of a pleasing response to the user and has some level of uh, value from a medicinal standpoint. It could be used for pain, anything from pain relief to uh, thousands of other conditions. And then we have what we call like a designer drug. Drugs that serve no purpose other than to get people high. Ecstasy would be one of them. Synthetic drugs. So what are we talking about? What are we talking about? And, and, and I still don't know. I still think in most instances my answer would just be yes. If I'm living in a post-apocalyptic society and I have something in surplus and you can give me something that I know I can exchange to get what I need and I don't have what I need but I have what I'm willing to trade with you in surplus, it's cash to me. I mean, here's the thing about this this whole drug thing. Most of you believe it's wrong, quotation marks around wrong, because it's illegal. That's why you actually think drug. If drugs were legal, you might think that they're a bad idea, but you probably wouldn't think they're morally wrong. Most of you don't have a problem with somebody drinking a beer or having a you know a, a whiskey and seven. And that's because it's legal. And if you grew up your entire life with it being illegal, you would probably have the same moral opinion of alcohol. So, if you're talking about a drug, LSD, even in this scenario, I have a real hard time taking that as payment and participating in its distribution. Because it doesn't really serve a purpose other than to screw people up. It doesn't necessarily mean I think it should be illegal. I think most of these drugs, if they were legal and available in known safe, pure dosages, we'd have less problems from drugs, and we certainly wouldn't have the situation we do with the Mexican drug cartels and the Central American drug cartels, because their product would be worth nothing. Their product would be worth shit. So I think there's a lot that could be, but I'm not going to participate in that. But if I were running a uh, uh, some kind of trade, in post-apocalyptic times, and there's no one to you know, lock me up and put me in a rape room because I possess a plant. And someone came to me and said, hey, I've got some marijuana. Let's take a look at it. Let's see what kind of quality we're talking about, what kind of value this stuff has. Let's go. If it's an opiate, you know, and I'm in a, a position where somebody might have to have a tooth yanked out of their mouth with a pair of pliers... And we can, we can look at and, and use the help of someone with some medical knowledge to know, hey, you know what, we can take this, inject this person with this, and they're not going to give a shit when we rip a bicuspid out. And we can keep them high long enough that at least when they come to, they feel like Mike Tyson punched them, but they're not screaming and tearing the, the flesh off their face. Let's go. And I think if you answer otherwise, you're doing it out of some moral construct that's probably not based in reality, and your answer may very well change if you actually were in the scenario that we're talking about. That's my answer to that one. I don't think it's a really simple question. But I do think LSD, ecstasy, I, I, I don't know that I would... Um, I don't know. Because the, the honest truth is, how bad do I need... How bad do I need whatever it is I'm really trying to trade for? If... I need some sort of other medicine to keep my family alive. If I've got a kid sitting at home, shivering, shitting his pants, you know, from, from diarrhea, that's dying, and I know that there's a medication that will save that kid's life, and that's my son. 
and I can trade LSD for whatever I have, and I know whoever has what I need to save his life will take the LSD in a in a. I won't even. I do that today. If that was my only way to save my my son's life, I would trade LSD to save his life today. And if you say you wouldn't, what do you value more? The moral constructs of another human being saying what's wrong or the life of your own child. Just a different way to look at it. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your feedback today. What I, what I actually want to start out with today is really, it is feedback. It's just it's feedback that came on the blog in response to my answer last week and the leadoff question about personal liberty. Um, and Barn Geek had called in and asked uh, a couple of di totally different questions. One on kind of an agricultural thing, and the other one was well, this person who I'm trying to break through to about developing personal liberty that feels stuck in their life. And could you say some words on personal liberty? And I was not feeling good last week. And there's a point at which, when you do what I do, and everybody constantly asks you your opinion, but yet the majority of people that hear your opinion don't actually do what you say that you you kind of snap a gasket a little bit. So when I answered that question, I did so with, let's say, some agitation in my voice. And uh, Insidious, who's like one of the most awesome contributors we have in the comments section and the blog that goes along with this podcast, um, said he's going to blame the illness, and it wasn't really a productive answer because you know you can't just yell at a person in a wheelchair to get up and walk. And basically what I said is if you don't think for yourself, you don't have personal liberty, so stop opening your mouth like a little baby bird in a nest and begging the media and whoever else is out there to puke information down your throat. And you know, I kind of went off from there. And it's like screaming at a cripple, get up and walk. Here's my response to that, and maybe a little more tempered version of what I said last week, but it's still the same message. If you're in a wheelchair and you're legitimately crippled, and you can't walk, I am not going to scream at you, get up and walk. But I am going to tell you, hey, you know what? You have arms. You have a life ahead of you. You can learn to take care of yourself. Get your shit together. right? Instead of, oh, I'm so sorry you can't walk. It's so terrible for you. Oh. No. See, that will actually entrench the person into victimhood. The only thing that can be done to get a person out of that. And I'm not saying like two minutes after the person finds out they're in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. But sometime pretty soon, you got to say, hey, this is life now. Let's make the most of what you have now. Not tomorrow. But if that person was languishing there in a wheelchair, and I knew they could get up, I would tell them to get the F up, and I wouldn't use the word F. I would use the actual word. I might even poke them in the ass with a stick to get them up. Because that's the only thing you can do at that point, other than make them comfortable in their misery. And, and the fact of the matter is, if you want personal liberty in your life, you, your first step out of the wheelchair is to begin thinking for yourself. And what Insidious said is they can't think. They've been trained not to think. They've not, it's like atrophy in the muscles. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. If you've laid in a bed for five years and it's time to get up and walk, then there's a lot of pain involved. But you can walk. There's no reason you can't walk. Get up and walk. And you might have to grab onto the wall, and you might need physical therapy and all. But for it to work, thou must decide in thou brain that thou art going to walk. 
And if thou decides thou shall not walk, then none of the other shit will make you walk. In the end, the individual must decide for themselves, I am going to walk. So if you want personal liberty in your life, the first decision must be, I will think for myself. I will start questioning everything I'm told until I verify whether it's accurate or not. And I will also start questioning whether or not I should give a shit. Does it apply to me? Does it really matter? Does it really matter what I just heard? Does it really affect me? Because here's, here is the most important thing about learning to think for yourself. It's not just whether or not something's true. It's whether or not you should care. It's whether or not you should care. Somebody said something offensive to your religion. Why do you care? Because the, the media told you about it this time? Let me tell you something if you are a person of faith. Whether you are a person of faith like me that's you know, very universal in your faith, I'm a deist. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a pagan. If you are a person of any faith, if you are an atheist, you have a faith, you believe in nothing. Okay? Right? If you are a person of any faith that values what you believe, somebody is saying or doing something that is insulting to that faith every second of every day, always. Somebody somewhere is. The fact you're upset is only because someone told you about it. And you have to ask yourself, why did they tell you about it? Do they really care? When the media, who I would say is the majority of the media today, are agnostic to atheist, right? Or they are completely non-denominational believers in something, but they don't believe in any of these, any of the world religions. Tells you, hey, some guy in New York took one of your artifacts and put it in urine. Do you think they're doing that because they are genuinely outraged? Do you think they're doing that because they really think something needs to be done? Or do you think they're doing that because they know it will create a visceral response in you and make you subjective? to the other pieces of information they want to put down your throat that day. So why do you really care? Why do you really care? Somewhere, somewhere in the, somewhere, someone in the world victimized somebody else. Do you know that person? Do you have any direct control over what happens in that place? I mean, if it's in your neighborhood, right? But if it's in, I don't know, Timbuktu. Jim hit Joe in the head with a hammer in Timbuktu because Joe said something Jim didn't like. I'm sorry. I have a certain concern for all human life, a certain empathy for all human life. But in the end, I don't care about Jim and Joe and Timbuktu I, because I do not have the ability to influence it in any way. And I'm not going to mislead myself to believe that I'm so important that if I just care something might happen to Jim or Joe in Timbuktu. Because it's not going to. The whole world does not revolve around you, and your influence in the world is increasingly smaller the more you worry about things that you do not control. In the words of Stephen R. Covey, you ha or Stephen F. Covey, you have two spheres around you, two circles. A very, very small one, your circle of influence. These are the things that you care about, that you have influence over. And much broader around you, you have your circle of concern. These are all the things you care about, 
that you have very little influence over. Let me tell you something. What the President of the United States is saying and doing, you have very little to no influence over whatsoever. In fact, you have far more influence over what the man says as, as part of a collective than you will ever have over what he does as part of that same collective. And what I mean is you can influence what your politicians say. You can, the, the, the population of the United States that are active politically and vote have a massive influence over what your elected leaders say. The positions they take, the platforms they write, all the things that they put out and say, this is what we stand for, this is what we do. You have almost no influence at all whatsoever on what they actually do. And what they say has little influence over your life. Obama said, doesn't matter if he's not going to do it. But that's what he's thinking. Doesn't matter if he's not going to do it. And do you affect, can you affect that? If I tell enough people, right, you're going to go on Facebook and you're going to post some meme that's inaccurate, by the way. And you're going to shove it at people who love the guy. And they know you hate the guy. And you think that's going to accomplish what? It's going to accomplish nothing. In fact, if anything, you're now aiding and abetting the person that you hate. The resistance provided from one side of a dichotomy entrenches the other. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you, if you do on the other side here. If you hate Obama and you rally against Obama with all kinds of information, especially fa you know misinformation, which is what most of it is on both sides, you actually help Obama and you help the people that like Obama. And if you are the person on the other side that's a liberal numbskull instead of a conservative numbskull, and you've rallied to that side, and you attack the people on the other side of the economy viciously, Republicans this, Mitt Romney that, blah, 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 Rick Perry, whatever, and you attack one side to the exclusion of the other, in fact, to the defense of the other, you've actually helped the people you're attacking. And, and then there's no way you're going to have personal liberty. Because your energy, your mental and physical energy, that should be spent doing things like extracting yourself from debt, planning your own lifestyle and implementing your own lifestyle plan, are now spent abating your enemies. And you don't even understand, you're abating both sides. The people you think are your friends are also your enemies. These guys, these guys you think hate each other, okay? You know, these guys you think are diametrically opposed to each other in politics, they're eating freaking caviar and sipping champagne together, okay, while you curse your brother or your father because he likes the other one. They don't hate each other. Some of them want certain things a little different than the other, but in the end, they both want the same thing, control and power of the country. And in the end, they're buddies. The, the illusion that the two sides of this dichotomy hate each other is about as real as the illusion that in the 1980s, Hawk Hogan hated the Iron Sheik. You remember that? For those of you old enough to remember that, right? The WWF wrestling Right? And people thought it was, some people were dumb enough to believe it was real. And I'll tell you the one thing about wrestling. I'll tell you what's real about it. It's real stunt. It's real stunt work and it's really dangerous and guys really get hurt. And it takes a lot of talent to do what these idiots do. But the whole persona, oh, right? Come on. So this is the perfect analogy to modern politics. 
So while while we're you know we got the uh, there the, was a Russian guy Ivan something and his Iron Sheik guy and they were at, you know mortal enemies with Hulk and his buddies, and and, and the whole country hates the Middle East at this time, kind of like today. We also hated the Russians. Remember the Cold War? We're trying to re rebuild that. So we had this 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 in this moral superiority. We are good and they are evil. And they were just playing off of this. And then you read the newspaper one morning that Hawk Hogan gets pulled over, hauling ass in Florida in his Corvette. He's smoking dope, pot, right? Remember, kids, eat your vitamins, be good, like the Hawk, right? Okay, hey, he's smoking dope. And who's sitting next to him smoking dope? The Iron Sheik, okay? This is your house majority and minority leaders. Instead of smoking dope, which they might be for all we know, they're eating caviar. And they're eating pate, like the real stuff from France. And they're talking about the little people. And they're discussing their differences and how they're not really that different. And, and they're, they're out doing fundraisers and how hard it is and how are the kids. And they're doing all that while you hate each other. And if, as long as you buy into that... There's no personal liberty. And then the whole system is used to sell you a lie. Everybody's in debt. It's the American way. That's what you need to do. Be in debt like everyone else. It's just part of life. It's just the way things are. Bullshit. See, and this is this is my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. They believe this bullshit. Whenever they ask about money, I'm like, you still got four credit cards? Yeah? I can't help you. But you don't understand. No, I completely understand. My brother-in-law said, you know what? You make more money than I do, and you have for a long time. And I said, yes, and I spend less money than you do, too. Now, think about that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not the earning side that's out of kilter. It's the spending side that's out of kilter. I mean, if you're telling me you want personal liberty, but yet you think debt is just the natural state of a human being, what you're basically saying to me is, I want you to teach me to swim, and I don't know how to swim, But before I get in the water, I want to put a great big heavy set of about 80 pounds of chains and locks around my body. And now I want you to teach me to swim. And I'm going to say, no, you're not getting in the water because you're going to freaking die. Right? So I can't bring you to personal liberty until you make a decision about getting debt out of your life. I, that doesn't mean I can't help you get to personal liberty while you still have debt. But if you're not willing to say, okay, number one, we're going to stop spending money we don't have. We're just going to stop making the, the hole deeper. And two, we're going to commit to paying more than we're paying now on at least one debt so we can begin to eliminate one and keep the others at stasis so then we can compound it and get rid of it. Can't help you. If you're going to tell me that you're going to listen to any media outlet and you're going to take what they say to be factual, I can't help you with personal liberty because now what you're saying is, I want to be free, but I want to be programmed by somebody else. I can't do that. It's like saying, I'd like you to help me be free, but I'm going to lock myself in this room. And I'm going to have a speaker saying things to me about the way things are and are supposed to be constantly from somebody else's thoughts. I can't help you. So maybe this is a little bit more pleasant of a way for me to deliver this message, but the, 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 the message is the same. Thou shall use thy effing brain, or thou shall be a slave for effing eternity. You got it? That is it. There is no way around it. And that's why TSP isn't for everybody. If I'm, see, in the very beginning when I started this show, this is a little history lesson of TSP. 
within the first few months, I started hearing from people about Ronald Reagan's bigger tent theory and all this kind of crap. And if you were a little bit less this and a little bit less that, then there'd be more people here. And the, the, the thing is, those people are not wrong. Oh, I could have TSP to a million listeners versus 100,000 in some right now. I, I could. There's no doubt. If I came on and told people that which they wish to hear, and if I, if I pandered to the fear side of survivalism, if I participated and worked with the idiots from Doomsday Preppers who have contacted me so many times that I eventually cussed them out to the point where they stopped, if I had done all the things that somebody interested in just numbers would do, especially with my ability to deliver and to perform, yes, I could have a much bigger tent of people that don't really do shit. I'd much rather have this 10% of what it could be by now of active people that actually do things and think for themselves and make a difference in their lives and the lives of others than a million people just so I can have more money and power. See, because I'm not a politician. I'm not Ronald Reagan. I don't give a shit if you don't like me. I really don't care. When I get an email from somebody who says, because you said this, I'm never listening to TSP ever again, and I don't care. Good. That means this wasn't for you. And the fact that you're not here to bitch at me and distract me from what I'm doing, okay, allows me now to cater to the hundred plus thousand people who do want to hear what I have to say. In other words, I can't help anybody with personal liberty until they've at least begun the process of waking the hell up. Until they've at least decided, you know what, there is a matrix and I'd like to get out of it, please. Until they're there, this isn't the place for them. I do not wake up zombies. That's not what I do. I don't believe it can be done with intention. I don't believe that a person can target a person and say, that person's asleep, I am going to wake that person up. I actually think that if you try that, you will further entrench them into zombieism. They will go deeper to sleep and they will cling tighter to everything. There's a great book I'd like you guys to read that explains the human condition and our need to turn people into messiahs, to turn people into heroes. It's called Illusions, The Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah. It's by a guy named Richard Bach. And it's about you know a guy that's basically the Messiah, basically like a, G a modern day Jesus that flies airplanes and meets a guy named Richard, who's himself his, his own character in a field, and they do barnstorming like in the 1970s. Is really when it seems to be set. You pay a couple bucks, you get in an old plane, they fly you around, and you land, and he learns all these lessons from from Donald, who is the the modern day Messiah. He gives him a Messiah's handbook, even. It's an interesting story, and it challenges a lot of beliefs. But in the beginning. There is what looks like notes written by a mechanic with greasy fingerprints. And it's the story before the story. It's actually the story you're about to read in a much condensed version is a parable. And it's about a river. And this river is running swiftly. And all the creatures that live in the river cling to the rocks on the bottom of the river. And they never let go. And they're terrified to let go. They cling tightly to the rocks. And one day, one of the creatures says, If I let go, the water will carry me, and I can fly. And 
I'll have something more than just this little rock. And all the other creatures say, if you let go of that rock, that river that you worship will bash you amongst the rocks and kill you dead. And you'll have nothing. But the one creature cannot be dissuaded. Eventually he lets go of the rock. And just as predicted, the river bashes him on the rocks. And they all say, look, see you fool, look what you've done. As he goes down the river. But as he's bashed on the rocks, he's bashed less and less. And the water begins to lift him up and he rises above the rocks. And he's bashed no more and he begins to float down the river just like he said he would. And he begins to look around and everything's so simple to understand now. But there's many creatures still holding onto the rocks and they look up as they see him flying by. And they go, look, there's one like us, but he flies. And he says, just let go, it's easy. No, you are different, you are special, only you can do this. And soon he's gone. And then the creatures begin to make stories up about this miraculous person like them that could fly. And they twist the message of just let go into all the things you must do so that one day you'll fly by, as if by magic. And as the one flew along, he realized he couldn't help anybody except those who would let go. That's personal liberty. As long as you cling to all of the dogma and doctrine that has been applied for you, and as long as you fear freedom, you can't have freedom. And yes, when you let go, you will be beaten amongst the rocks. It's worth it. And eventually you do rise above them. If you've never read this book, I highly recommend it. Let's go ahead and take some actual feedback um, this took up a lot of the show, but I thought it was important. Here's one kind of somber and scaring, and it certainly isn't what the MSN and uh, CSN or whatever the hell these ass clowns are, CBS and MSNBC are telling you right now. Um, do you know that we're in the third biggest stock bubble in U.S. history? We are. This comes to us from Neil um, and uh, in Tennessee, and here's what it's here's what he here's what Neil said. Casino tables are loading up. Good call again, Spirko Domus. And what he's talking about for those that are maybe newer to the show, for years I said they'll load the casino back up at least one more time. And this was when people were saying it's over. We're not. This is the great recession of all time when the economy will never recover. None of this stuff the Fed is doing will work. This is way back in 2008, 2009. I'm like, here comes a false recovery and. As we sort of peeked up out of it, people said, well, see, you're right. I'm like, no, we're not there yet. It actually took longer than I expected it to, but we're there now. And what I kept saying was they will load up the casino, and then they will take their winnings, and they will depart the casino, and everybody that's that's, that's jumping into the casino will lose. Uh, This is on Market Watch from the Wall Street Journal, which at least is somewhat mainstream, Here's a quick question for you. What do the following years have in common? 1853, 1906, 1929, 1969, 1999. Pass the question around your office, call your money manager and ask him or her to, post it on the office notice board. Give up? 
Those were the peaks of five massive generational stock market bubbles in the United States history. Investors who bought into stocks around those peaks ended up with terrible returns over subsequent 30 years. Forget the stocks for the long run, they ended up with stocks for the long face. The bigger the bubble, the worse the return. And according to a new research report, we are back there again. U.S. stocks are now about 80% overvalued on key long-term measures. According to research by the financial consultant Andrew Smithers, 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 release the hounds. Anyway, uh, the chairman... Uh, the chairman of Smithers and Company, and one of the few to warn about the bubble in the late 1990s at the time. The five dates listed at the start of this article, he says, are the only time since 1802 when data be, be, when began being tracked, when stocks have been 50% or more overvalued according to these measures. And only two of these bubbles, 1929 and 1999, both of which followed the disastrous crashes, were bigger than today. That's right, according to Smithers' data, we are now in the third biggest bubble in U.S. history. Oh, to jump ahead slightly, he also suspects it will go up even further before it comes back down. Smithers bases his analysis on a combination of measures, subsequent 30-year returns, and comparison of U.S. stock prices since 1900 in relation to key measure called Tobin's Q, which looks how much it would cost to replace corporations' assets from scratch. The two measures march closely together. For over 100 years, nothing has predicted investors' future 30-year returns better than to compare the stock market to the Q. Smithers used the data from Jeremy uh, Stocks for the Long Run Siegel from the London Business School professor Elroy Dimson and his colleagues from the London University finance professor Stephen Wright. Cabots to this alarming analysis. My market watch colleague Howard Gold has recently warned that fear can be dangerously seductive and influential when it comes to financial news, and he's right. One should always take a deep breath and pause for thought when reading anything deeply bearish or bullish. Smithers has been bearish for some time, although he has not attempted to predict short-term moves in the market. Today, Smithers argues that the stock prices are first likely to go even higher because they are being driven upward by two forces. The first is the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing program, the policy of flinging money at the banks in hopes of some of it doesn't stick but finds its way into wider economy. The second is, cor second is corporate buying. Underappreciated at the moment is that the top buyers of U.S. stocks these days are the companies themselves. U.S. companies have been borrowing aggressively and using money to buy their own stock. Probably the most important single implication of this analysis is not what is going to happen today or next week or even next year. It is to remind investors that stocks in the aggregate have not always generated high returns. On the contrary, the stock market has throughout modern history gone in long ways, with booms of several decades followed by mediocre, even disastrous returns for many years. Since hardly anybody studies history anymore, and people on Wall Street think they can ex extrapolate the future from 20 years, extrapolate the, the future from 20 years data, This one insight is likely heavily underappreciated. If Smithers right is right, what are the possible icebergs that could come along sooner or later and sink today's market? He suggests several. First, the Fed could cause as could as it winds down quantitative easing, a policy uh, on track to end this year. As research by Smithers and others show, the stock market boom since 2009 has almost exactly tracked with rapid increase in the money supply. Uh, second, companies could stop borrowing and buying shares of their own stock. All the talk of fat corporate balance sheets hides the problem that U.S. companies have actually been increasing their leverage to keep buying stocks that they would have to continue to do so at infinitum, perhaps. The third could be a return to 70-style stagflation. Smithers notes, contrary to what you may hear from the bulls, 
U.S. productivity growth has been slowing for years and indeed has been tumbling recently. Such slowing growth, Smithers notes, could set the stage for a rise in inflation and interest rates or a sluggish economy. Either in turn could weaken the stock prices and investor optimism. My take, the older I get, the more I sympathize with Socrates, who supposedly said that the only thing he knew was how little he knew or something similar. However, I give Smithers' analysis a lot of weight. It is, after all, based on hard numbers, unsentimental analysis, and a deep study of history. All three are in short supply elsewhere on Wall Street. Um, this is an interesting article. It's, it's almost exactly what I've been telling you, though. See, you have to ask yourself a question. Why would a company buy its own stock? Why would a company, why would a company borrow money to buy its own stock? And, and here's the answer. It does a lot of things for the company's benefit in the right economic situation, which we have created. This is a, a, a this is a, an economic situation that exists today that could not exist in a free market. This is a manufactured situation. The Fed making money available to the banks at next to nothing, and therefore making money available to the corporations to borrow at next to nothing, has has gone into a situation where a company can borrow money for a fraction of a percent. You can't, but they can. That's why you get a fraction of a percent at the bank. All right. So companies can borrow money for next to nothing. Their dividends pay more than the interest on the money. So by buying their own stock and knowing their forecasted analysis and what they're going to be saying, they know that their money is safe in their own stock for at least the next six months because they know everything they're going to save for the next six months. It's insider trading, but it's okay because it's their own stock. They're allowed to. You're allowed to buy your own company stock back. There's issues with individuals in the company buying their own stock based on insider information. But the company itself can simply buy back stock anytime it wants to. And in fact, for the system to work, it, it has to be able to do that. So let me put it to you this way. If you absolutely knew you could earn two and a quarter percent on some money and you could borrow that money at a quarter of percent, how much money would you borrow? Well, you'd probably borrow as much as you could. I mean, real, really think about that. If you could borrow money at a quarter of a percent and earn 2% on it, and you knew you were going to earn 2% on it, and you knew you were only going to pay a quarter of a percent on it, how much money would you borrow? And the answer would be as much as you can get or as much as you can use because that 2% may have a cap. You may only be able to do... Uh, so much of whatever it is you're going to do with the money with that, that return. But if these companies know they're going to be paying a dividend of, of, of you know, one and a half to two and a half percent, and they can effectively buy back their own shares from the market and earn that return. Not only that, by recapitalizing the shares into the company, and the banks have done this extensively. The banks have done this more than anybody else. You, you, you reduce the number of outstanding shares. Therefore, you increase the apparent dividend. It actually doesn't go up at all, but it looks bigger. It looks bigger. It looks like a bigger dividend relative to the whole. So now you, you give the market confidence that you're paying a healthy dividend, and you attract more investors to put more money into the company and further drive up the stock. And that's how you end up with stocks 80% overvalued. Now, what's very, very interesting about this happening now and people saying look it look see it happening is something that someone said a long time ago so what i'd like to play for you now is a 
piece uh, of a video series, Why QE3 Will Work. I did a part one, part two, and part three of that. I'm going to play a part of part three. I'll put a link to where you can see all three of these videos, but I want you to think about what I just read to you, and I want you to hear what I have to say in this video. And here we sit on July 21st, 2014, and I want to tell you this video was recorded October 4th, 2012, to put it into context. And here you go, uh, me from a little bit less than two years ago. Going to lead to. So let's look at this. There's one thing I left out in the last two videos about what the banks are buying. The banks are buying high-quality stocks right now, and so are many investors. One of the things I kept telling people is during this downturn, companies were going to make record profits, and everybody thought I was crazy. Okay, here is uh, an article. This was in Forbes, I believe. Five dividend stocks shoveling cash to shareholders in 2012. When the market retracted, the stocks, uh, the, the companies... Uh, especially the companies that were profitable, saw this coming before it happened. They were already in position to lean out their workforces, do layoffs, contribute to the massive growth in unemployment. They did so. They did so smart. They didn't just slash. They, they got rid of the low producers. They got rid of the jobs that weren't really necessary. They got rid of redundant positions. This is part of why the economy has not recovered from an employment standpoint, because these companies didn't just send your jobs overseas. That is a, that is a lie. They sent some jobs overseas, but what really happened is many of these positions didn't get sent overseas. They didn't get sent anywhere. They were eliminated. They're eliminated. They're not coming back. It would take the building of new industries to bring new jobs to, to really reduce unemployment. So when a company does that and the stock market falls on its ass and yet their stock only falls, falls four or five percent, maybe, maybe seven, eight percent companies like Walmart and other big blue chip companies, IBM, et cetera, uh, Exxon Mobil didn't really come down that much with the recession, created some buying opportunity, but not that much. Those companies became so much more efficient through this downturn that when the thing turned around with the false recovery spurred by bailouts and, and, and bank bailouts and everything else, their stocks came back up to the median price and their, their production per share on dividends has grown. And the hottest sector in the market for intelligent long-term investors right now is dividend-producing stocks. Entire mutual funds are being built around 5% or higher dividend producers with a historical record of that. For the record, I have been positioned that way since about March of 2009, if that tells you anything. And I am beginning to exit those positions personally. I don't tell you what to do with your money. I just tell you what I've done. You make your own decisions from there. But the banks are buying these stocks now. They'll continue to buy these stocks, and they will drive the market up. This is what we have to look at. You have to stop stop thinking that it has to fail and start thinking about how it will fail. What will failure look like? What is the track to failure look like? So we know that Ben is putting billions and billions and billions of dollars into the hands of the banks. We know what they're buying. I already told you that in the other videos. I'm not going to go back through it. But one of the things that they're buying, and if you look at high-end, blue-chip style companies, companies with good track records of profit, dividends back to shareholders right now, and you look at their shareholder records, you'll see their highest holding shareholders are banks in many cases. Chase. Uh, Bank of America, etc. So they're buying this stock. So what can billions do to a market? Well, when you first start pumping money into a market, you drive it up. 
right? Then you take short positions on the backside of the market. A short position means you have an option to sell, and if you buy right, when the stock goes down, you actually make money. Okay? I can't go into options trading right now, but that's how it works. So collectively, you and all your big bank buddies decide how you're going to do this, and you take profits. So as the companies increase, 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 you've held long enough to capture the dividend, all of you exit a few of your positions, and you take profits for a short-term drop. And you say it on the news, it's profit-taking. You've heard that before. It's a slight correction. Don't worry, it will rebound. They're just taking their profits. Uh, so then you create the short-term drop. Every time you take profits on gains, you also take profits on your short positions. You re-enter the market and drive it back up. You create a stair-step rise in a bull market. Don't think it can't happen, folks. It's exactly how it happened last time with different sources of the funding. Along the way, we get the effect of a rising tide floating all boats. So many other stocks that aren't necessarily being directly influenced by these bankers come up. Now, if you think I'm saying put all your money in the stock market, you are a fool. You better be very careful if you put money in the stock market right now. You better really know what you do, you're doing. Smart day traders will make a fortune during this period. I'm not a smart day trader. That's not what I do. I think long term, and I protect my ass. You can do either one, but know what you're dealing with. That's what I'm trying to tell you. All right, next. The thing you do next to really make a, an illusion is as a bank, you start to buy you some of the extra money that Ben's dealing out to you and doling out to you and some of the money that you're creating out of thin air by starting to lend money again into the housing market, right? Because you can defer all your bad loans over to Ben and keep all your good ones. Remember that? Okay, so you take the money that you're creating through monetary creation and through your gift basket from Ben Bernanke and you buy back your own shares. Now, why would a bank buy back their own shares? When a bank buys back its own shares and dissolves them into the company, they dilute the number of shares on the market. Think about this. So every time they buy back, you know, a hundred thousand shares or ten, you know, uh, a million shares or whatever, depending on how big the valuation of the stock is, when they buy those shares up and they pull them back into the company and they dissolve them, they reduce the total shares that are out there. What does that do to the dividend yield? It increases the dividend. It makes the bank look more profitable. It's the same profit distributed to less shareholders, so it shows a higher dividend, so it heats up the banking sector while the entire concept of dividends being the place to go is heating up and the market's on a rally. You get it? This is how you set the freaking trap for the dumbass herd that comes in at the end, not the beginning. Then you bail out. You exit your positions everywhere, and you convert to your commodity-backed assets. And when you do it, because you've taken profits over and over and over during the run, once again, the financial liars talk everybody off of the, uh, off of the ledge and say it's just another correction, it'll be fine, don't worry about it, and then it falls off the back end, everybody panics and the market goes to crap again. This is what you're going to get. And it's not just QE, QE3 or QE Infinity, as I call it. There'll be more versions of quantitative easing. They will keep pumping it and pumping it and pumping it. And you heard pump and dump. This is going to be the largest pump and dump you've ever seen in your life. This is legalized institutional insider trading. They're doing it right now, right in front of your eyes, and people are either going, we're on our way to recovery, or it's over, and they're not seeing the middle. Generally, the middle holds the truth. This is what I see coming. This is why. Now, the other... 
Um, I don't do a lot of I told you so's. I do point to past predictions and say, here's what I was talking about, but this is a pretty big one. When, when you now have a mainstream publication like the Wall Street Journal telling you exactly what I said would happen is happening. Companies buying their own stocks, capitalizing on their own dividends, creating the illusions of larger dividends, and that behavior along with quantitative easing, putting the stock market into the largest of six bubbles that's ever existed in the history of the market, the third largest one that's ever existed, uh, and that being exactly where we're at today. And even the bear, right, this, this Smithers, released the hound Smithers, Smithers released the hound Smithers is saying, yeah, this is, this is catastrophic. We're not done yet, though. This, I actually think this bubble may have the power right now to inflate larger than any of the previous bubbles. Instead of being number three bubble, it'll be number one bubble before it pops. And, and I'll tell you, there, there's, there's a lot going on right now, again, that people don't understand. So the Fed's basically killing off QE. And they're like, oh, no, the world will end. There might be a little bit here and there, but the reality is that money's in the economy now. And it is only just beginning to really circulate It is only just beginning to really circulate. It's only now, after two years of this crap, and it's really four years, but QE3, it's about two years of QE3, it is only now beginning to actually have velocity. See, again, this is the thing. Nobody that explains this actually talks about this because it doesn't help them sell you gold. Okay, so... All the inflation people talk about is Weimar Germany, the tulip mania, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Inflation, inflation, printing money's inflation. And it's, to say that you inflate a currency simply by issuing more currency is, is to speak from a depth of ignorance that means that thou should not be speaking on economics at all. Because there are so many other factors to creating actual inflation than just printing money that to say that proves you don't understand money. And if you think it's that the case, just understand, I'm not putting you down. That's what you've been taught, so it's what you believe. But I could add a trillion dollars to the economy tomorrow and create no inflation if that money all goes somewhere and stays there. The only way that trillion dollars realizes inflationary consequences to the economy is two things have to happen. One, that money has to move through and expand in the economy. So not only does that trillion dollars have to move through the economy, it also has to, in the way our economy is set up with fractional reserve banking, it has to be lent. It can't just be spent and have a marked effect on inflation. It must also be lent, because every time it's lent, it also multiplies. So if I put a trillion dollars in the economy, in one cycle it can become $1.9 trillion if it's lent. See how that works? And it can happen again and again and again, ninefold. And unless that's happening, unless it's moving and multiplying, it will have almost no effect on inflation. The other thing that has to happen is the monetary creation has to exceed the economic activity growth. So in other words, I can put a trillion dollars in an economy, but if the economy legitimately grows by a trillion dollars, it'll have no effect on inflation. You have to put more money in then the economic input increases, and it has to move at the same time. It has to have velocity. Those three things have to be in place or you don't have inflation. And the Fed killed themselves to make some inflation here. And it's coming, but it's trickle-down inflation. It's not immediately seen because most of the money 
has been taken by the institutions it's been given to and held on to in one form or another. Now, the stock buybacks actually put the money into circulation. But when you're buying your own stock back, you're not buying 100 shares of Ford, right? Or 50 shares of Bank of America. You're buying massive amounts of stock, which means it's institutional trading. You're buying from money market managers. You're buying from basically American Express or Charles Schwab. You understand how that works, right? You, you, the, the vast amount of stock held in the country privately is held in the form of mutual funds. So it's one institution buying from another institution. Now, what do you think? What do you think these other institutions? Well, they're the banks. They're using it to buy their own stocks. They're buying it back from the people that sold it. It's money incest. It's staying in this tight circle. It's not going into the economy. Stupid. All right. It's, it's all of these institutions holding on for economic Armageddon. They're, they're waiting for the day of reckoning. And they're holding the money and they're making a few pennies. You know, they're making a few dollars off a few pennies while they hold it. And they're increasing their war chests. And when this thing collapses, it'll be like the Great Depression, only instead of the banker buying the house for pennies on the dollar... The companies will buy each other and themselves up for pennies on the dollar. Because they'll have lots of cash and everybody breaking their necks to sell the stock for whatever they can get for it. And they'll buy just enough to let it fall to the point where they can buy all their stock back, in some cases, for 10% of not its price now, but 10% of its value then. This is a new monopoly, folks. It's a big club and you ain't in it. Just like I had for you on Friday. This is your economic future. There's no getting out of it now. Something has to be done. You look at our runaway debt, you look at, at the inflationary consequences of what we've done that have to come to fruition, then something has to be done for the wealthy to preserve their wealth. And that is to take what's left of your wealth And buy it from you for a fraction of what is from you at a fraction of what it's worth, and then drive the whole system up again. The question is, can they do it again? Is this the final loading up of the casinos? It might be, because it may be very soon thereafter that there's a revaluation of our currency. And, and folks, when they do it, it won't be direct. They're not going to tell you that's what they've done. They'll make some monetary policy series of changes that effectively do it that the average person will never comprehend. I'll be sitting here telling you what's happening. And just like when I put this video out two years ago, I'll be called a kook, a quack. People in the comments section, this guy looks like he's homeless. What the hell does he know? And I still have people making those comments on that video I just played for you. In spite of the fact that everything I've said would happen in that video, up until the very end part of it, has now happened. Because people can't accept the truth, because they can't think for themselves, because that's personal liberty. And, and I'm telling you, the majority of people that are in the quote-unquote liberty movement today are, are, are is enslaved, if not more enslaved, than many of the masses. Because I think the only thing worse than believing you know the truth when you, when you believe what's, what's, what's false is to believe you know the truth to the exclusion of what others claim as truth and still be wrong. And, and, and what you have here is an old world paradigm being clung to by both sides. 
The average sheep are clinging to the old world paradigm that in the end, everything's really okay. That in the end, everything always fixes itself and everything's really okay. And then you have a lot of people that are so-called libertarians or in the liberty movement or so-called anarchists that have no grasp of economics, monetary policy, and reality. They're clinging to the old world paradigm of it's got to, gold will fix it all. Gold, just gold. That's all we need is gold. All we need is gold. And, and you don't understand. It doesn't matter if you're using Indian beads or gold or silver or rocks with holes in them or bitcoins or dollars or euros. All money is is a system of accounting. That's all it is. And it's an accounting of where the value has transformed from one area to another of an economy. All the value comes from the economic activity itself, the real activity, the production activity. That's where all the value comes from. It comes from labor, it comes from output, it comes from production. And that means even if a currency becomes worthless, the wealth of the economy still exists. And as long as you can play the game right to whatever symbol is being used, you have enough of it to acquire everything that's been depressed and value falsely, you become richer every time there's a depression or a recession. It's a big club, and you're not in it. And what's about to happen pretty soon, next couple of years is part of the plan. And you can either participate in it and wail and gnash teeth and swear to God it's Obama's fault, or if you love Obama, he's still trying to fix the mess that Bush made, whatever. You can believe it all you want. It won't change reality. It won't change the truth. We are exactly where we're supposed to be based on the plan that the people in power have, which is more for them and less for you. And for you to work harder and longer to get less and believe yourself to be free. So you can either get with planning your personal liberty and your individual life and designing your life. Or you can continue to have somebody else design your life, decorate yourself, and believe yourself to be free. But if you think the economic future of this country exists anywhere other than we are heading into another massive economic recession to depression, then you're deluding yourself. The market has no place to go at this point in totality but down. It doesn't mean it can't go up more, and it probably will. I believe that your two sides of the coin, your Democrats and your Republicans, are, are mafiosa, and that the Democrats know that they're sunk in the next major, the next general election, and they know there'll be a, a Republican president, and their best play right now is to do everything they can to keep this working, so that when the next mafia leader takes over and it does fall apart, because trust me, the people behind it, even though they know it's going to collapse, and even though they're going to make a fortune on it, the higher it goes, the more they make on the way up and the more they make on the way down. So they don't want it to end. They, they prefer this just to keep going, but they know it can't. See, they understand the laws of economics. And they know you can only do one thing so long before there's a consequence. So they'll do whatever's in their best interest and they'll accept the consequence and they'll play to the consequence. So the plan right now from the Democrats is to hold power and to get ready that when they hand it off to blame. They're already planning this. They already know it's going to collapse. They're just hoping, please, please let it hold together until at least January 2017. Doesn't matter if the new president's been president for one day. He will be blamed for everything that happens. But he'll be a strong man, like I told you before. He'll be a dictator. 
And the people that put him in power will cheer him as he takes more liberty than any time in history. And they will yell and scream that it was the last administration that caused all this. And that will justify their guy doing things they would have never been okay with the previous guy doing. And liberty slinks further. And the wealth of America sinks further. And the middle class erodes further. And downward class migration as being middle class means less and less. Unless you design your lifestyle. Welcome to America. I wish I had a different message for you. There's lots of hope, but it's not in the system. You need to build your own systems. Or all you're going to do is run faster in the wheel to get the same number of durable pellets. Let's take another one. Something totally different here for a little change of pace. Um, this comes from Christian. What are your thoughts on the usefulness of black cherry, prunus serotina, as it relates to forest marketing garden concept? I recently found a large black cherry tree on my property full of small, tasty fruit. The size of the tree makes it difficult to harvest, but I noticed a lot of sucker branches shooting off the trunk. Considered the possibility of rooting the suckers and use as part of my forest garden. What are the uses of black cherry? Is it easy to root from cuttings? Love to hear your thoughts and any other ideas you may have. Black cherry is a wonderful plant. I don't know that it's a good market garden plant for that concept. It is generally considered a medicinal. And you can use both the juice and the bark for use as a medicinal. Uh, it is considered to be quite good for cough and croup and, and chest congestion and things like that. And I've used a number of products that include it for those uses, and I've had good results with it personally. Of course, any actual health claims of food turns it into a drug, and the FDA gets involved, so I can't make any claims like that. I used to say it was generally thought of, and my personal experience has been that it has been effective. Um, it is a very small fruit, and it is even smaller in relation to the pit, Uh, when you think about it that way, the, the pit of a, of a black cherry is, is relatively large compared to the size of the fruit, say compared to like a, a, a pie cherry, a tart cherry, a bing cherry, something like that, where you have about equal amounts of pit and, and pulp, where I'd say you probably have about two-thirds of the mass, not just the weight, but the, the volume. Two-thirds of the volume of a wild black cherry is probably pit. Um, they do taste good. There's nothing wrong with them. I mean, a, a good ripe black cherry is something you can eat out of hand. You just have to eat an awful lot of them to get anywhere. So that's why they've been traditionally used more uh, as a juice and, and uh, as a medicinal. Uh, because if you're doing that, you don't need too terrible many of them. And uh, when you you know you, when you juice them, and if you're going to make a jelly or something like that, you don't really worry about the pitch. You just kind of press them and get the juice out of them. Uh, and they're they're very good for that type of a use. There's a lot of people out there as well that aren't really clear on the difference between the black cherry and choke cherry. They, when you talk about wild black cherry, they think of choke and they're choke cherry and like ah, oh, that's not very good. I mean, you can make choke cherry jellies and stuff like that. It requires a lot of sweetening to make it more palatable. They call it choke cherry for a reason. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's a totally different, um, uh, variety of prunus. It's prunus virginia or something like that. Virginia or something to that point. Basically prunus virginia. Um, uh, where black cherry is prunus serotina. I'm sure of that one. Um, and so they're different plants. So the first thing for people that are listening that aren't sure what you've got 
If you get something and it's like a small cherry and it looks nice and dark, black, looks good, and you try it and it's bitter as crap or it's really sour and it, you're just like, I would, and it's really astringent. You're like, I wouldn't want to eat that. You're probably going to choke cherry versus black cherry. Now, on the concept of taking the suckers, rooting them, planting them and using them for a market garden, I've never seen anyone use pruning to keep wild black cherry small and bush-like. So I, the answer is I don't know what that would be like. I know that you would still be picking an awful lot of really small berries. It, it, it's almost like picking elderberry, but it's a lot more work than picking elderberry because elderberry at least has the decency to all be in one nice clump for you so you can get to them pretty quick. You can even, if you're doing juice with elderberry, you can cut the whole thing of berries and just take it all as one head and then gently press it so you don't get too much out of the green and, and get your elderberry juice that way. You know, Black cherry, you're, 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 they're in clumps a lot of times, but you're pick, you can't really just take it out and go very well, at least to my experience with it. So your big limit there is going to be how much time you have to spend. You know, if you had a CSA with 50 shares sold and you wanted to give everybody a quart of black cherry juice, I think that would be fabulous. And I think you, you know, more information about black cherry can be found at the following websites. And that way you don't make any claims about it. You just put that on there and they can look it up and learn all the great things you can do with it from a medicinal standpoint. Um, and it's more than just, you know, fighting colds, flu and chest congestion, uh, that black cherry has been shown to have positive effects on. Actually, it's been shown as to be a big inflammation reducer, uh, overall. Um, it has some properties that would be construed as anti-carcinogenic. Um, it also is seen as something that may have some real benefits to helping people come recover from heavy exercise and exercise-induced pain. It's huge, huge in antioxidants. It's been traditionally used to treat things like gout and arthritis. So, I mean, it's just this, this massive um, nutritional and medicinal powerhouse but yet it has this challenge with being picked. So, again, if you wanted a quart of juice to go to every CSA member just for once a season, you probably have to pick to get a quart of juice. I bet you need three quarts of cherries at least, at least, maybe closer to four quarts. I mean, you're talking a gallon, so 50 gallons of these things. So I, I almost feel that there has to be some way to develop a, a, a way of picking them much more effectively. Um, it makes me think of like blueberry. If you've ever seen a blueberry rake, I just don't see it as practical with a black cherry tree. But if some way you can increase the effectiveness of picking, and I, I would say there's no harm in growing some small ones, pruning them into, you know, a head height bush and maintaining them with training and pruning and seeing what happens. But I would put that in that this might be a nice thing. I wouldn't, I, if, if I was building a forest market garden uh, based on trees and bushes and shrubs and vines right now, um, I might include some of that and plan on it if it works out in the expansion phase. But I wouldn't get too heavily invested in it because if it ends up taking up a lot of space that could have went to known quantities, um, I, I think you, you might end up really regretting that. Even if you had a lot of production, you might really find it hard to get it all capitalized into product. Now, 
I've tried to find, you know, some information on how to improve harvest. Um, I mean, one of the things I guess you could try, I've just never tried this, is wait until almost all your cherries look really, really dark on your tree, spread out a tarp, and shake the shit out of it. See if that works. I don't know. They're little, so it takes a lot more to get them to let go. Um, but you might find that you get a lot of drop that way. As far as reproducing them, anything technically can be reproduced from a cutting, and some things should be, but wild black cherry produces in the wild from seed. And I think I would start a ton of... If I wanted to actually get this thing into a production standpoint, I think I would stack in the place where you might want 20 plants, 100 to 200 plants. And I would start training them all. And I think if in the first main... Like you get through the first year and you go into your second season, if like in the second season, like out of 200 plants, 50 went and flowered and the other 150 didn't, I think I would kill all 150 of them and select towards fastest reproduction. And then I think that by the third year, the ones that were getting really bushy and putting on lots of the biggest cherries, I would live and I'd kill everybody else. And, and I might put 500, I might put 1,000 trees in an area that when they're a big bush because you've pruned them into a big bush and not let them go into a big tree, that maybe 10 fit, maybe 15 fit. Well, what if two really good ones are next to each other? Let them grow next to each other. Figure out something to do with the other space. I'm just saying, I would, if I actually wanted to make this happen, I'd pick a small experimental space, and I would, I would get seed from my own tree. I would find as many black cherries as I could to get seeds from. And I might put a 1,000 seedlings in, in an area that will hold 20 eventually. And the fastest growing, healthiest, quickest into production, bushiest, largest ones would live, and everything else would die. And I would try to get seed from 100 trees. 100 seeds per tree from 100 trees. And I definitely use some of the genetics that are right on your property. And you might be surprised at what that could do. I don't know that anybody's done any work like that before. And it's a relatively easy thing to do. And you might need 2,000 seeds and bank on a 50% germination rate. I mean, you're talking about planting these things, you know, 10 inches, 12 inches apart, almost like you're planting corn, and start selecting. If something looks sick and it doesn't look like it's going to make it, pull it out of the ground. I think but if you have if you have 1,000 seeds in the ground and 500 come up, it's probably by the end of the first year, you've probably pulled 100 out of the ground. Everything that looks sick, everything that doesn't look, look vital and healthy, yank it straight out of the ground. Right? You know? Or cut it off at the, at the ground and let it try to cop us back. So this is the thing. You can actually be putting lots of root matter into the ground, lots of exudates into the ground while you do this. So you just keep coppicing the ones that you want to favor to the other ones, and they'll never catch up. Over time, as the, as the canopy begins to form, as your shape begins to form, the ones you've been coppicing eventually get shaded out. That, that's how I would try this. And uh, Now, if someone out there in the audience wants to help out, and maybe you know, I didn't have time today to find any information on how... Because there has to be a way to harvest large amounts of black cherry berries 
because there's so much product made from it that there has to be a way to do it. I just don't know what it is. And as I try to research commercial harvest and stuff like that, it's all around timber. And for all I know, it all comes this way, that they cut the whole tree down for timber and they take the cherries and they just happen to cut it when it's ripe. I don't know if it's a byproduct, but as someone who's grown up, using black cherry my whole life. And it's one of the things I don't like about this area in Texas, that they don't grow here. Even in Arkansas they grew. They grew all over in Pennsylvania. It, it is a fabulous product, but it's always been something that we've used sparingly just due to the intensive nature of collecting it. So if anybody knows a way to speed up harvest of this small berry, I'd love to hear it. Anyway, let's uh, take another one. Another one totally divorced from everything we've been talking about today is from Joe. Joe says, uh, I was interested in getting a pellet gun. Do you have any suggestions as for 177 or 22 caliber and what other, what types of brands are of good quality? Thanks. Um, I would tell you, first of all, if you have any intention to use this thing to control pests and harvest small game, don't even look at a 177. Straight to a 22. The knockdown, there's slower velocity, but the knockdown power and the efficiency and effectiveness of one-shot kills, or at least one-shot complete decap uh, decapitation, <laughs> one-shot uh, complete incapacitation, and then you know need one follow-up shot maybe to finish something off, is so much better in a 22 uh, than a 177. I wouldn't even consider the other one. And this comes from a guy that grew up in my childhood shooting lots of things, probably many things that he shouldn't have, uh, overall, lots of birds and chipmunks and squirrels and anything else that was considered a pest and I wouldn't get my, my, my ass handed to me for uh, with all types of pellet guns. My, by and large, favorite pellet gun that I ever owned was an old Crossman, uh, 22 pellet gun, uh, variable pump, and this was from long enough back that instead of 10 pumps, 8 was as many as you were supposed to put into it. Um, Benjamin Sheridan makes a version that looks very much like this Crossman no longer makes the gun that I'm talking about that I had as a kid. Um, my Here's my big issue with air guns today. Almost all of them have nylon plastic sights. And almost every one that I've owned with those, simply by doing things like setting it up against a wall or walking through woods, sooner or later those sights are damaged and break. When I was a kid... BB guns and pellet guns came with actual metal sights. And and so what I would be looking for mostly in a pellet gun today, whether it's a piston action, single brake barrel cock, drop one pellet and close it, or a variable pump or anything like that, is something with very durable sights on it. You can put a scope on an air rifle. But the reality is, the true effective range of most air rifles without going extremely high-end is such that there's not a lot of value to it. That generally I think you'll, you'll do better without it. And some people will disagree with this, and that's okay. And if you want a scope, that's fine. But I'll tell you that many scopes that would do fabulous on something like a little .22 rifle will be tore up by air rifles. Um, especially the piston air rifles, you know, the ones with the brake barrel like Gamo and Beeman, etc. They have basically a reverse recoil, meaning they, they don't really have a recoil, they have a forward coil. When you when you fire them, you feel something that you, 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 you accept as being some kind of a piston recoil. But if you think about it, that piston's going forward. 
So the, the, the rifle actually moves forward in your arms, not backwards against you. You feel it in your face, and because you're expecting recoil when you fire a weapon, you kind of accept it as recoil, but really what you have is the weapon actually kind of jumping away from you. And, and this is hard on scopes. I mean, good air gun scopes are made to absorb that type of recoil. And you think, well, I've got a scope that I've had on like a .243 or a .308, and it's just fine. It would handle uh, an air, air, air rifle. It may not. I've seen more scopes go bad on air rifles than anything else. I'll also tell you that very few air rifles um, have receivers that are really well thought out about the ability to mount a scope. Most use a groove-style clamp-on mount. In other words, they don't use a bolt-down, um, like a weaver-style mount or something. They, they use a scope ring that you just simply tighten up, and you, it slides into a groove, and then it locks. And I've seen a lot of the manufacturers start to make them so that that, that that back ring goes all the way back against something into a set. And since it sets, there's nowhere for it to move in reverse. Well, you can tighten the shit out of those things, and often they don't move backwards, they move forwards from the frontal recoil. And if the, this is, if the scope can move less than your ability to perceive that it's moved at all, and it can dramatically change the impact of the, the, the BB or the pellet. So I, I just, without going really high-end, see, in my opinion, that most scoping of air rifles is simply a mistake, and you're better off using them the way that they're designed to be used. Relatively short range, fast acquisition, target uh, shooting, training, and pest and small game hunting. And there's no reason to not do that with iron sights at all. And again, I can't reiterate enough the concern about sights today. Uh, I have a Beeman uh, piston air rifle that I use a scope on because I don't really have much of a choice because the sights of the barrels, both barrels, uh, are ruined. They're nylon with fiber optic centers. Look really great. Great sight picture. And I have a 177 and a 22 caliber barrel for it. You take one Allen key out and you can switch the barrels out. And both sights have been damaged and neither one has really been used that much. And neither one has been used anything approaching being rough. And I, I, I actually think, I'm not 100% sure, but as I've noticed both of them break, I think both of them broke simply from setting the gun in a corner. And this is preposterous. I had a, uh, you know, one of my, my, my real runaround bang up BB pellet guns of the day is one that like, a lot of us grew up with, the Crossman 760. And yes, that was a 177 in BB because let's face it, BBs are cheap, right? And, and, and that thing, I used to throw that thing across the, the handlebars of a bicycle and, you know, go, go basically BMX riding with it places and stuff like that. And that thing worked and worked. I don't even know what happened to it. I think I gave it to somebody or something. I think I beat the shit out of that thing for like 10 years. Yeah, before, you know, I kind of like as I grew up and left home and went off to the army, well, I don't need this thing anymore. Gave it to a cousin or something. It probably still works. And I guarantee you the sights aren't broken on it. And that modern version has these shitty, everybody wants fiber optic this and crap. It's a freaking BB gun. It's a freaking pellet gun. It is a 25-yard tool. Just a decent set of irons is what really belongs on there. You know, and I might buy one of these to, to check it out because that old crossman went away when an uncle took things that weren't his, uh, much as the story of many things in my screwed up family. But uh, the Benjamin 
392 air rifle, which sells for like 160 bucks, I think, um, is, is the closest thing to that old crossman that I had. Um, let's talk about some other things. It weighs about five pounds, eight ounces. I was just right in there with like a little Model 25 uh, bolt action 22 or something like that. Uh, I I don't really get you know just so that you can have a, a 1500 foot per second pellet gun um, these 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 rifles that have barrels that are longer than you know Remington Model 700 rifles and way more these these rifles that that weigh eight eight and a half pounds um, the whole Mystique to me when I, you know, as a kid, I could grab the 22, right? So I could grab a shotgun, you know, I could grab one of the, one of the center fire rifles. I could, I could go with anything from an old Sears and Roebuck single shot 20 gauge to, uh, uh, my uncle's Model 12 Winchester shotgun, my own 870, any of a dozen different 22 rifles. I could pick anything up any day that I wanted. To go out into the woods plinking or small game hunting or whatever. Why did I choose so often to grab that old crossman? Well, it only weighed four and a half, five pounds, something like that. It was short. It didn't make a lot of noise. It was cheap to shoot. I could carry, you know, a couple hundred rounds of pellets in a little pocket thing. Um, it, it, no one would bother me. No, even if someone saw me with it in a place, you know, because I grew up where I could go around with firearms, but there were still certain places like, why does that kid have a gun? You know, and, and you know, people looked at that, they went, oh, that's a pellet gun. There was no mistaking it for something else. Um, but it was mainly that it was so handy. It was so light and handy. It was something that you could, you know, you throw a sling on it, throw it over your back, and you could go fishing and still have a gun with you. You could go camping, and it wasn't in the way, and it, it just worked no matter what. It, it, you didn't sit there and, you know, fight this big giant barrel or one big silence on her giant scope. It was a utilitarian tool that always worked. And I'm looking at the specs right now of this, uh, this Benjamin 392, and it says that the uh, muzzle velocity is about 685 feet per second. And that's probably right in with what that old Crossman was. It's probably right about this. I mean, this gun looks almost identical. The bolt's a little different, but otherwise, this, and I, I, I don't, my thing is, this is the only reason I'm not flat out recommending. I'm looking at the sights, and they look like they're nylon, but they don't look like, at least the front sight does. It looks like more like a heavy-duty nylon, like they make this trigger guard for like a 1022 out of now. It doesn't have a fiber optic thing with this little thin stuff, so I might buy one of these just because I don't have anything like this anymore. But my, my point is that 685 feet per second with a 22 caliber pellet, anything... You know, unless you get into big bore air guns and stuff like that, anything that you should be responsibly shooting at, at any range you should be responsibly shooting at, with a 22 pellet gun, that is more than sufficient to kill. If that won't do it, you shouldn't be using a pellet gun on it. Again, unless you're going with one of these customized big bore heavy duty guns. Now, some of these other guns intrigue me that I've seen. You know, um, I, I I can't think of the name or the manufacturer of them, and I, I just can't look it up right now. But uh, there's one that's in the NRA magazines a lot of times. It says protect your protect your nuts, and it's it's got like a a tank on it basically. Like the stock is like a compressed air tank, 
and they look pretty small and compact and may allow for very you know shooting multiple shots and things like that and they probably are very respectable about their velocity and I can see the utility there I mean unless there's some way to easily recharge that tank at home though um, you know maybe multiple tanks I, I I don't know there's just something about the simplicity of a simple variable pump air rifle um, it's something that most people from my generation and back grew up with you probably had to earn if you were like me earned your way into it you, know, you got yourself one of the old daisies or something like a red rider uh, or, or something like that with a single cock lever like an old style carbine that you would you know like a like a marlin lever gun kind of looking thing and you could cock that one time and shoot it and it would shoot 250 feet per second if you shot a a rabbit with it. He didn't even, he's like kind of like looked at you like, was that a fly asshole? What are you doing? Leave me alone. Um, you know, like that type of thing. And once you prove you were responsible for it, then you'd step up to something like the 760 or, or what have you. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what I grew up with. And I just think for pellet guns, uh, unless you're doing something really specialized, it's probably the best way to go. And uh, maybe I'll pick one of these Benjamins up just because, well, Frankly, I could use it around here, and I can't rely on that Beeman because it has issues with holding zero with the scope, and the sights are shitty because they're uh, fiber optic nylon. Let's uh, try something. Let's, let's take another one. All right, so uh, let's uh, let's take a completely different one here again. This is from Brent up in uh, Prince Edward, Pr- Prince Edward, Prince Edward Island in uh, Canada. Short. What is worth making versus what to buy? Long. Not sure if you did a show on this already, but I was looking into at a can of tomato paste and wondering how many tomatoes plus energy it takes to make a six ounce can, which can be had for sixty nine cents. Or go, I'm buying that. But salad dressing, it's a no-brainer. I make it. Same with mayo or Miracle Whip clone. I know you like Chef Keats Montreal steak uh, spice, so that may be a line in the sand. Wine, well, it's hard to duplicate climate and soil conditions of local geography. I made dehydrated tomato powder last year, and now I know why it's expensive. I used by uh, I used an Excalibur dehydrator and a Vitamix to pulverize it. This is a book I'm considering. Making bread. Uh, let me get this up real quick so you can... So I can give you the title. Oh, the book's called Make Bread by the Butter, What You Shouldn't, it Should and Shouldn't Cook from Scratch. See, I, I don't know if that's true. Make bed, bread by the butter, well, it depends. Do you own a cow? If you own a cow, making butter is easy and quick, especially with a good churn. Uh, if you're going to go buy cream from somebody else and then make butter, I don't know. I mean, a family that owns a cow quickly figures out that, yeah, I wish I could sell raw milk because I can't use it all. You know, on a lot of farms that have a few cattle that don't, that a few, you know, fill milk cows, um, that, that don't use all of the, the, the material, they end up, if they can't sell it, feeding it to pigs. Uh, making clabber and feeding that to hogs. So uh, if you owned a, uh, a cow, I'm getting off track here a little bit, I guess, but if you owned a cow, I'd make a lot of butter. Butter's awesome. I mean, and fresh-made butter's great. Um, but a, tom- a can of tomato paste? No. No. I can tell you that probably the biggest crop for productivity on my grandparents' uh, homestead was tomatoes. The We got good tomatoes through the summer, but as we headed into the end of August, beginning of September, into the fall harvest... The sheer volume of tomatoes would just boggle your mind at how many. And my grandfather grew 18 plants every year. Not 19, not 16, not 17, 
18 plants every year. They were going, and he didn't rotate them either. They went in the same spot, and that ground was maintained specifically for tomatoes. And what tomatoes liked went on that ground, and it worked beautifully. And when those things went in that final production in in the late you know late summer early fall, we had tomatoes upon tomato. I'm talking grocery sacks of tomatoes. I'm talking like as you knew the first frost was going to come and kill them, that we'd go out and pick all the green tomatoes and put them in the shanty up where they could get some light from the window to ripen. And that alone would be just like, what are we going to do with all these tomatoes? I'm talking in my trips around the neighborhood with bags, bags of tomatoes to take to, uh, you know, Helen Catchmer and all these people that my grandparents knew that lived in the area. You know, she'd write the names, honestly, take this stuff out. I've talked about that before. And the amount of tomato that was given away was unbelievable. And my grandmother made what they call barbecue uh, by the gallon uh, for canning. And it's barbecue in one place and one place only is this called barbecue. And that is in the coal region of Pennsylvania. And if you're from the coal region, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're from anywhere else and somebody told you it was barbecue, you might smack them. Damn sure it'd smack them if you was from Texas and had never been there, didn't understand it was a regional thing. Um, it's kind of like sloppy Joe, but a hell of a lot better. And I mean, and that was one use of tomatoes. And she canned tomatoes, and there was green tomatoes in the chow chow. And she made tomato sauce, and to, she never made tomato paste. And she used it in her cooking plenty, and we bought it. And, and I still do today. I think that you have to look at an energy audit in anything that you do. And there are certain things that flat out an industrial process will be able to do more efficiently than we do. Now, if you're trying to eat healthy, you're kind of in a quandary because you know that a, a commercially produced tomato paste might be one of the most toxic laden things that you could, you could, you know, ever, ever purchase if it's not organic. And you also have to read labels because you'll also find that a lot of these products now that have no need to have corn syrup in them. Like, why would you put corn syrup in tomato, canned tomatoes or tomato paste? Like, there's just no reason to do that, yet it's done. Trust me, start reading your cans of tomato sauce and tomato paste and canned tomatoes and stuff like that at the store, and you'll find a lot of it that's 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 got that done to it. You know, but even if I go to uh, organic, uh, a, a can of organic tomato paste, I'm looking at right now on Amazon, six-ounce can uh, is uh, 98 cents if I buy them one off, and I can get them less if I'm buying them by the case and stuff like that. So a buck a can. You can't, at home, make a six-ounce jar of tomato paste for a dollar. You cannot do it. In energy alone, and certainly in time and energy, let alone how many tomatoes it takes to make that, you cannot do it. It is not going to happen. And it doesn't make sense for you to spend that energy there because it could be spent elsewhere. And as we look back at the things that our grandparents canned and products that they made and stuff like that, you also have to ask yourself, well, how was that really being done? What was the justification for that? So you have to realize that in many instances, these folks were in a totally different world than we're in today. And I don't just mean technology. I just mean the lifestyle. So... In most of these families, and my grandparents, definitely, the women did not work that much or that frequently. I know my grandmother did work for a while um, at one point uh, due to my grandfather's disability and you know needing money, but 
through most of their marriage and through the majority of, and certainly all the time that I knew her, and I have memories, very good memories of her. When I say good, I don't just mean positive. I mean solid, locked in, I remember. you know, Because when you're a certain age and younger, you don't really remember. But all the way back to like five years of age, kindergarten I remember fairly well. I'm sure my details are wrong, but I remember the times. I remember things like my kindergarten teacher's name. Uh, and I remember spending time with my grandmother at that point in my life. And she never worked from that point forward. And I know that when she talked about when she used to work, it was very clear that it was a very short period of time. And she was the exception because my grandfather had black lung and had been in a collapsed mine accident and had been just basically completely laid up to where there was nothing he could do for a number of years. And that's why she went and worked. So most of her contemporaries never had a job. Now, I'm not going to get into a fight over whether working at home is a real job or not. In fact, I'm making the case that it is, so I don't want any ladies yelling at me for this. But if you don't work and you stay home all day long and you're not going to go to work ever and you know that and your job is primarily clean the house and cook and you get good at it the way women from the time did, especially when you're cooking for big families and you know how to cook in ways that are very, very time conservative, like slow cooking and things like that. So when dinner's ready, everything comes out, boom, there it is. And you do a lot of your cooking on weekends. You end up with a lot of time. I'm not going to call it free time and insult anybody, but a lot of time on your hands. And you got to figure out what to do with it. Well, if there's a shitload of tomatoes coming out of the garden, and it's more than you can use right now, then spending a couple days canning them makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. Well, mom's not in that role anymore. So it isn't just that mom doesn't know how to can. Does mom have time to can now? And I also want you to think about you. what else is different is the role children play in a household today versus even 20 years ago. Um, I didn't have chores. Okay, I have responsibilities. Like It wasn't like this is your chore for the day. It was like, go do this. It wasn't like, here's your allowance in return for it. I mean, chores were things like, there were extra things that didn't really need to be done, but like a grandmother or a dad would want the, you to do them. And they knew that it was like you were pulling your weight. And they're like, oh, I'd like to give the kids some pocket money, but I don't want to just give it to them. So, hey, if you'll do this or you'll do that. Or like if dad normally mowed the lawn, like he had chosen that. Not like, not like... You know, just like he's doing because he had to. But my dad liked to cut the grass. He actually enjoyed it. Especially once he left his, 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 his full-time business and we moved back to Pennsylvania, he liked to cut the grass at his house and at my grandmother's place. But there were times like he just didn't feel like it and he knew it wasn't really my responsibility because he had taken the responsibility and he'd say, hey, if you'll cut the grass this week, I'll give you 10 bucks. Now, let me be clear about that. It wasn't really a request... Right, Saying no wasn't really an option, but it's like, oh, we'll pay you for this because it's above and beyond what you normally do. Or my grandmother might go, you know, that shrub needs to be pruned. Hey, will you go prune that and I'll give you some money. You know, And, and, and they were always the extra things. The, the things that you were just supposed to do, you just did them. And most families ran that way. And if you had a family, if you have a family today with three boys, mom has a lot of work to do that she wouldn't have if those three boys weren't there. If they were a single family, a single child household, 
or if um, if they had no children, mom would have less work to do, even if she was stay at home, if those three boys weren't there. In my grandmother's day, if you had three boys, you didn't have something that caused you to work more. You had a workforce. Those three boys were put to work. Once they were old enough to be able to have a strong back and get their ass out there and work, they took work away. So mom didn't have to go out and pick the tomatoes, cut up the tomatoes, put them in the cans and can the tomatoes. All mom had to do was take the cut tomatoes, put them in the can and can them. Because you can bet your ass the kids were out there doing it and there, were, there was no question about it they were going to do it. So I think even a lot of things that made a practical sense to do 20, 30 years ago may not make practical sense to do today until such time as the family's lifestyle is able to move into a more enjoyable lifestyle. I would rather stay home every day and tend a garden than go to a job. I mean, I choose to run a business instead of go to a job, but in the end, I still have to work and make money. But I mean, I would much rather, when it, when it comes down to it, if I didn't think what I did was so important, try to engineer my life to a standpoint where all I did was just, you know, homestead. I, I'd rather live that way. And a lot of people would. And a lot of women would prefer not to go to work. Now, a lot of them aren't sure about that. A lot of them really aren't sure. Because they've been so marketed to that you are just as good as a man and you have every right to a career that a man has. Yes. That doesn't mean it's what you're supposed to want. If you want it, go for it. I will not be condemned for what I'm saying today by any woman right advocate because I am for anything you want to do, you should do. But do you really want to? And I'm not telling you what your answer is. Everybody's answer will be different. I swear to God, if I'm attacked for this, I will delete it. I'm not going to be bullied over this bullshit and speaking the truth about women and what many of them want. I have talked to so many women that have said, all I really wanted to do was stay home with my children and take care of them. And we couldn't do it. We couldn't make it happen. We couldn't figure out how to make it happen. And society says, well, that woman doesn't have any ambition. Wait a minute. Our best and bright, the same system that tells you our best and brightest should be teachers. Instead of like curing cancer, you know, solving the world's problems, creating new energy sources. Our best and brightest should be teaching kindergarten, all right? But a woman who stays home and sees to her own children has no ambition. Bullshit. Bullshit. Biologically speaking, a woman's role is one of nurturing children. Purely biological. Again, if that's not what you want to do, fine. I think we have too many people in the world anyway. We could do with a little less reproduction out there. I'm just saying. Not because somebody mandates it, but because we as a species look around and go, hey, do I need 18 kids? I don't think I do. Right? But biologically speaking, women are engineered to care for children more than men. I don't know if you've noticed this, but men can't breastfeed. So biologically speaking, who is supposed to feed a child for the first year of its life? A man or a woman? We have bottles now. Yeah, but I'm not born with a bottle attached to my chest. Biologically speaking, women are engineered to care for children. And that's why the instinct is so much higher in a woman. Men eventually come around to being fathers. And generally speaking, when they become a father, if they're not a sorry-ass piece of crap, it happens pretty fast. 
But when you talk to most kids, I, you know, 17, 25, in that range, and they're males, and they're single, do you want to be a dad? Well, maybe someday. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure. And, and when they see a baby, right, that's not theirs, that they don't know, they don't run over there and pick it up. Right? And if it's shit its pants, they don't want nothing to do with it. And if it's got sticky, gooey crap on its face, and I don't know this baby, it's not cute. It's a mess. I don't want it. Now, you can be mad at me for this again, but I'm just telling you to, I'm not telling you the way things should be. I'm telling you the way things are. Women, oh, he's so cute. Look at him. Let me hold him. I want to blow on his belly. and Let's wipe him up. Oh, I'll clean his poopy with diaper or whatever. And I'm not saying women don't get tired of it, because sure as hell do. But one off, oh, it's all cute. Right? So women are predisposed biologically to fulfill the role of primary nurturer and, 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 and caregiver for children, especially when they're very, very young. Look at a lion, lion pack. The male has nothing to do with the cubs for about six to 12 weeks. And then he begins to take a role in mentoring cubs. And the cubs will climb on him and bite his ear and claw his face and bite his tail. And he might, once in a while, but eventually he tolerates him, he likes him. Even if they're his sons that he knows he's eventually going to kick out of the pack, right? He knows he's going to banish them eventually. He takes care of them as they get a little bit older. He gets more involved. If men worked and fulfilled the role of hunter-gatherer, And women stayed home and fulfilled the role more of caretaker of, of the area of the home. That would happen. And guess what? It is what happened for thousands of years of human history in hunter-gatherer societies. And you can go to any hunter-gatherer society you want to today. This is amazing I got off on this, this, this discussion here from this. But it's where it's led. But any hunter-gatherer society today, you're going to see this dynamic play out. The women tend crops, they clean the food that the men bring home, they maintain things around the house, etc. And when something needs to be done that requires the physical power of the male, that's when they get involved. And the children are literally attached to their mother. And they literally, in some societies, I've watched documentaries, they have to be pried away from the women. Especially the boys have to be pried away from the women. There's, there's societies where it's 11 that, it, that a young boy is taken in as a man. I can't remember where it is. It's some African tribe. It's either African or South American tribe. And the men come for the boy in the night and take him away. And they have their initiation rituals. They take him out and they tell him stories. And he goes out in the jungle and he learns how to do you know the things that men do. And at that point he's considered now in that role. And, and they, they, talk, they talk about how in this... There's no, there's no malice in this. These, ch these children are not harmed. And they come back the next day. They don't leave their homes at 11. They still live at home. But now they go out with the men when they hunt. And it starts with the ceremony. And sometimes the men have to go in the home and physically remove from the, like these huts, physically remove the boy. Because the mother doesn't want him to go and take that step. It's no different than the woman crying Because their son's all grown up and will be leaving home so soon on the first day of kindergarten. It's the same dynamic. It's universal. And it is the role the majority of women would fulfill if they could. By choice. 
Now, is that to say that it hasn't been abused in the past by males? No. No, men caused the revolution that caused the damage that we're looking at today. Men took women for granted in the home. All of the crazy divorce law we have today that's so unfair to men became what it is because men threw women away before it existed. Just, I'm tired of you, I want somebody new, you're out. And they, they kept everything they had. And a woman was 45, 50 years old with no work experience, no life experience. Kids are grown, so there's no, you can't make the man support the child, just out. Done with you. We did it to ourselves, guys. And then, and then the people that control society capitalized on it. And now divorce is an industry. Family court is an industry. Look up a, 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 a video or a, a, a movie called Divorce Inc. It will make you sick when you learn the business that the family court system is and how children are abused in it. It's disgusting. So men clearly abused this system because they had all the power. At least they thought they did. But for every man that abused it, there were 20 that adored their wife. And the truth is, and I'm, this is where I'm going to end today. This is a weird thing to end up here from this, but I, I just like when I feel called to talk about something, I talk about it. The truth is, our society has been irreparably harmed by creating two two adult working families as a matter of necessity versus a matter of choice. And for all the talk that women didn't have jobs and women didn't have careers in the past, is bullshit. There were plenty of women, 1920s, 1910s, earlier, that had jobs. And they weren't all just school teachers or nurses. Some were scientists. Yeah, Madame Curie? Hello? Okay? But as a matter of course, the average woman took care of her family. And when you say that and it offends somebody, that person that's offended is basically saying that that role isn't important and it isn't noble and it isn't valuable. Well, what if the man wants to stay home? Then fine. Then fine. Some men love that role. Most don't and aren't going to. Most don't and aren't going to because biologically we're not wired that way. And... and, and The, the war on being able to even insinuate that the differences exist between the sexes is asinine. If you don't think there's differences between the sexes inherent to biology, first of all, we both have things physically the other people, the others do not. And to think that that has no physiological consequence. If you don't think somebody with ovaries that goes through an ovulation cycle, doesn't have a different mental state in their life than someone who does not have those things, you're just choosing ignorance. And you're actually not even ignorant. You know better, but political correctness keeps you from admitting that. Of course we do. Notice I didn't say which one was better. I'm just saying someone that goes through a monthly ovulation cycle is going to have chemical reactions in their body that are going to have interactions with their mental state that are going to make them behave differently than if they did not have those things. And every woman that's been through menopause will tell you, oh yeah, oh yeah. So we're different there. Um, 
Have you seen a woman set the world record for bench pressing? No, and you won't. You will not. Men are physically larger on average than women, which means the exceptional physical specimen of the male will always be stronger than the exceptional uh, physical specimen of the female, unless we genetically engineer something to the contrary. The strongest woman in the world isn't close to the strongest man in the world in, in, in brute strength. It's okay. There's so many things women are better at than men. And there's many things that men are better at than women. And I'm telling you, in general, women are better caregivers to children than men are, especially in the younger stages. Men are driven more by logic than emotion, and women are driven more by emotion than logic. Okay? If you can, if you can accept that, then stay with me. How logical is a three-year-old? They can be more logical than you might think. We just had my grandson uh, Braylon over uh, last night, stayed with us. Uh, Tiffany and Matt were over for the day, and he wanted to stay, so we let him stay. And he was throwing one of his three-year-old typical tantrums. And I just simply, and he wanted to stay really, really bad. He wanted to stay with us. And he's crying, and everybody's talking to him, and everybody's trying to appease him and all. And I'm like, no, we don't deal with tyrants, at three-year-old tyrants in this home. And I just walked up and said, Braylon, do you want to stay with us tonight? Yeah. I said, then you have to stop this right now, because if you throw a tantrum when mommy and mommy leaves, you're going home with, with them, and you're not staying here. And that was the end of it. It was over. It was done. Okay. That works sometimes at three. It works never at two. And many times when a child's in an emotional state, three, four, five years of age, a woman can get through and a man can't. And that doesn't mean a man can't learn the skill and it doesn't mean a woman can't use the skill of logic at times. But in general, there's an emotional reactionary attitude that young children have. And as they get older and they begin to learn and amass knowledge and develop language that can be communicated with a more logical level. And men become a better partner in parenting as a child reaches that stage. When the child is no longer in a pure emotional, I want, I want, I want standpoint, the, 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 the inherent strengths of the man become more useful in co-parenting. And then there's always a dynamic struggle between the emotions of the woman and the logic of the male. But those, when put together properly, and when we take the arguments that we're going to have about what to do away from the child, we're, we're, not, we're not totally in sync on how we're going to handle this. Johnny, go to your room. I don't want to be in trouble. You're not in trouble. We're just going to have a conversation without you being in it. We have that conversation completely apart from him in a low tone of voice so that he can't hear what's going on. And then we give a unified answer. We get a properly nurtured and raised child. Because the, the, the hard logic of the male is tempered with the compassion of the female. And the somewhat too soft emotion of the female is tempered by the hard logic of the male. This is, this is how children were meant to be raised. It really is. It really is. I'm not saying that a single mother or a single father or a gay couple can't raise healthy children. I'm saying if you have your choice, if you have your choice, 
that the, the, the solution that most consistently ends up with happy children is a well-balanced male and a well-balanced female in a, a very co-productive relationship where both sides utilize their strengths, understand their weaknesses, and work together. And the days of doing so many of these things in the home that we now just buy, we do more from a time deficit than anything else. But Brent's right. Tomato paste? You can't afford to make tomato paste. And even in the old world situation, very few people did. It's kind of a modern industrial invention. Wow, I didn't think I'd get off there. Hopefully I haven't pissed everybody off. I, I really think if anything I said about this male-female dynamic upsets you today, it's because you're married to what society has told you versus the facts and reality of what is. And if I hear anybody, well, I know this woman and she's the most logical person, and that's one. And that's one. Yeah, I know a guy that can bench press 700 pounds, too. I know one. One guy. Does that mean men can bench press 700 pounds? No, it means a guy can bench press 700 pounds. I know some men that are emotional train wrecks. I know men that I'm like, where's your dress? Where's your dress? You know? What is wrong with you? I know men that cannot have a logical conversation without getting upset and physically hurt. You're like, am I talking to a... Not only a woman, but am I talking to like an emotional train wreck of a woman? What is wrong with you? Are you, I've, I've said to men, are you PMSing? Do we need to put this off to a different time in the month where you feel better or something? Are, are you manstrating or what? I mean, so, yeah, I, I'm not saying every man is a picture of logic. And I've seen women that are hard-nosed, hard-ass sons of bitches, man. I, I have seen women that are the toughest negotiators in business you've ever seen that are hard-nosed, hard-line, logical tough they're not the majority and I often think are they happy are, are they happy and how'd they get that way I think most of the men that are emotional train wrecks they never had they never had a male be a male in their lives they don't know what it is to be a man so they act like a woman because they don't know how to act like a man they've never had the behavior modeled They've never seen the man that heads up the family when there's a complete catastrophe. Somebody died. You know, a legitimate reason to cry. They've never seen that man be stoic and say, we just have to deal with the situation and fight the tears and deal with it. And cry, a little here, a little there, and, and cry alone if necessary because the family needs the leadership right now and that's what he can do. They've never seen that behavior model. They don't understand it. They don't know. They've never seen a man insulted to his face with very insulting words simply turn and say, you're not worth my time. You're not worth my time. Go away. So they think that being a man is, is always bowing up. They've never seen a man watch somebody be publicly rude to a woman and say to that man, hey, dude, what's your problem? What's your problem? Apologize. And if that guy bows up, they've never seen four or five other men just step in and go, no, 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 I saw what you did too. You're not doing that. We don't behave that way. And not get all bowed up and not get all tough and just say, you know what, you're going to apologize for what you just did. They've never seen this behavior. They've never seen a, a man 
walking into a store with his son, and his son's behind him, and there's a lady behind the boy, or even a man behind the boy, and the boy just walks through the door and lets it swing shut and doesn't hold it for the person behind him. And seeing that man turn around and scuff that kid on the ear and go, what's wrong with you, son? Get that door and apologize for not having manners. They've never seen this behavior. And they've actually been told that that behavior is wrong. It's wrong to be a man. That men are you know, gross and mean and gruff. And that's, that's evil. That's, that's archaic. Barbaric. Now, this is why our country's screwed today, folks. Men don't know how to be men. And that's a lot to do with women trying to be men. Women, you can't be men. No, you can't do everything as good as a man. I'm sorry, you can't. And you will never be able to. Again, you can show me the one-off, I understand that. But in general, women cannot do everything as well as men can do it. And men cannot do everything as well as women can do it. And when we get confused in our roles, and again, if you're a woman and you want to be a marine biologist and live on a boat and study plankton in the farthest reaches of the earth and, and, and scuba dive in the, the coldest waters and, and have the toughness to do that, may God bless you in your journey. I will not stand in your way. But I'll tell you what, as a guy that's run enough businesses in my life, I know the difference when I ask a group of women versus a group of men to work two hours of overtime tonight because I need it done. I know that I get more excuses from the women and I get less excuses from the men. I know that the women bitch more about it while they're doing it and the men just get it done. Well, that's just generalizing. It's not just generalizing, it's results. And it's not bad on either side. I'll tell you what it is. The woman in general, will put more priority on getting home to her kids than the man will. In general. Because she's better at it. Because it's more important to her. Because she sees her role as caring for those children physically and directly. And the man sees his role going out and getting what they need so that they can be happy and healthy and providing all of the needs to the family. You can see it in a job loss. You talk to a woman that loses her job, she worries about the economics. And she's upset because she was fired or she lost her job. And she takes that personally, the, the act of being fired. But you never have the conversation, I have it anyway, with a woman that's lost a job that feels like she's somehow now a failure as a mother. I need to find a new job. I need to figure out what to do. I'm worried about the household. But never like, my role was to make money for this family, and now I'm not a good mother because I'm not doing it. It's almost the instant way a man feels. Because he's hardwired to go out and hunt and gather for his family. To defend, to protect. Because he's stronger. Because he's bigger. Because he's more willing to do what's necessary if it comes down to it, in general. These roles are not my opinion. These roles historically and biologically are just the way things are. And if again, if they're offensive, sorry. But it's only because you've been lied to about how important the role of raising our children is. We live in a society where they tell you that a teacher 
who teaches times tables to second graders is a hero. But a woman that stays home with her children as a stay-at-home mom doesn't have any ambition. Those two thoughts are completely, totally incongruent with each other. And if you examine society, you'll find thousands of competing ideas that are both supposed to be true and both cannot be true. Because society today is about control. It's about controlling you and getting the results from you that they want. So grab on your life and design it. And I'll tell this to any woman out there. If you really, really would prefer to be home with your children, there is no shame in figuring out how to do it. That's not a call to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, which is what the uh, the haters will say this is. That's me giving you the same advice I give every single person every single day and the advice I'll close with today. The secret to designing your life is to figure out what's really important to you and what you love the most and what you're most passionate about and how to be able to do that one thing or that group of things effectively and well in a way that makes your life better every single day and do so with resiliency and redundancy so that you will always be able to do that or if for some reason you're derailed for a while you can quickly get back to that position and if that happens to be raising your children and anybody thinks that's not good enough remember they don't live your life they don't live your life you live your life And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.